0: Uh, You haven't met me yet. I am your transitional pastor, Mike Sherrett. my bride Janice. We're so grateful to be called to labor with you in this season, and you are the Lord's beloved. Trophies of His grace, His precious possession, the objects of His undying love. We're going to continue our series in humility, the subject of humility, we're rooted for another message in Matthew 7, 1-5. If you have your Bible open there, please. Matthew 7, 1-5. <clears throat> Jesus speaking. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see that speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I have been in pastoral ministry for 40 years. And sadly, during that time, I have seen Christian friendships, Christian marriages, Christian organizations, and Christian churches crash and burn. And when you walk in the wreckage, seldom do you find gospel-created humility, the kind of other-centered beauty that typified the heart of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You do find lots of people who have the ability to see specks in other people's eyes, they actually specialize in finding fault. But they keep skipping the class that shows them their logs, their faults, foibles, frailties. So Jesus is inviting you to class this morning. Come on in, sit down, you've got that part. And on the board, Jesus has written a question he wants us to dive into. What's the question? It's verse 3. Why do you see the speck in someone else's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? He is saying, The occasion of spotting what's wrong with other people is an opportunity to look through a window in your own heart and make discoveries that benefit you, your relationships, and glorify God. So here are the questions I believe Jesus wants to ask of that provocative image why do we have this uncanny ability to not notice the junk that's wrong with us, but see with 2020 vision what's wrong with other people? First question, do I really want to change? When you belong to Jesus, his spirit begins a reformation, a renewal, a reclaiming of the image of God in you that lasts a lifetime. Christians, by definition, change. They're always growing. Yes, Amanda. So how different would you be if you consistently prayed, Lord, show me my logs. Empower me to grow in humility. What character flaws are you regularly asking the Lord to change in you? So if you weren't praying that way, what's to keep you from becoming the person that always thinks they're right, that resists correction, that's prickly, as we call them, that rarely admits they're wrong, that doesn't question their motives? What's to keep you from becoming that person? And if you're not engaging, as we saw last week, in this battle in your heart between humility and pride, you will not grow as a believer. And you will inflict pain on those around you, if even unwittingly, and you won't experience the love of Jesus because you see this love of self, from which pride springs, and love of Jesus, they don't get along, they're in conflict. They're at war with each other. That's the first question. Do I really want to change? Second question, do I really know the heart of God? So how many of you, have given a choice, would rather go to the mountains for a little time than the beach? Mountain people, raise your hands. A lot of them, yes, mountain people. How many of you have given the choice would rather go to the beach than the mountains? Yeah, let's go, see you there in July. Where's the place God loves to go? He loves the humble heart. Listen to the words of Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Now, most people don't have to be religious to get the idea that God is transcendent. He's other. He's like up there, way up there, right? Most people get that. We don't have a problem with that. And here's the one who is that, who says what? I dwell in the high and holy place. You got that right. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly heart. Did you hear that? The one who is way up there. His presence fills every universe you could conceive of. His presence fills eternity He dwells in humble human hearts to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What is God's passionate interest in a lowly heart? It's got to be at least this. The pride, the proud have no room for him. The proud's attitude is stay out and he's like, okay, I'll stay out. But even more, When God sees a lowly heart, he sees the reflection of whose heart? His own son's. When he sees the humble, gentle heart of Jesus, the father sees a reflection of his own glory. That is the thing. Your God is most interested in in earth history to see reflected in his people the glory of his own righteousness and holiness. That's what he's about, which means we ought to pray daily, oh, bring about by your spirit, Lord, in me something of the glory you long to see reflected. But here's the point. When the Lord Jesus invites the weary to himself, how does he describe his heart? You know this. Tell me with two words. Jesus said, my heart is gentle and lowly and humble. How many people think of the heart of God as gentle and lowly? You get a picture of this on Isaiah 42, verse three. A bruised reed he will not break. A burning wick he will not quench. The God of all power can come into a human, weak, frail, dying Weeping, feeling worthless heart, and not extinguish a smoldering wick. I think of Psalm 147 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Is that you? Jesus says, I am drawn to that place. Now, what does the Lord Jesus Christ know about brokenheartedness and woundedness? Everything. His heart broke over the unbelief of his people Israel. His heart broke as he was being forsaken by his father on the cross. He has five wounds to this day in his glorified body. To assure you, he gets woundedness. And he loves to bind them up. I have to tell you this about myself. If given the opportunity of going to an all-inclusive resort in the Caribbean or spending time in slums ministering to people, I would go to the Caribbean. Not your God. He is moved with compassion by human brokenness. I I had this it hit home to me in a very vivid way. When we were in seminary, we were poor, so we didn't do this very often, but I brought my little boy, Mikey, an ice cream cone. We didn't go out for, even for ice cream cones in those days. And I'll never forget, we, it was a hot summer day. He, 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 he got his little ice cream cone, and he stepped off the curb onto the, onto the hot pavement, and, and, the, and the cone fell off onto the, onto the ground. And he burst into tears. And, of course, my heart broke for him, my heart broke for him. How much more the heart of our savior breaks for the ways we inflict pain on ourselves and others inflict pain on us. Third question, Jesus has brought you into the classroom, he's put this provocative image on the board, How is it you notice specks in other people's eyes and don't notice your own logs? How is that? We're asking questions to try to understand what Jesus is after in that. Third question, have I sincerely taken up arms for the conflict? Am I engaging in the battle? Are you day in and day out cognizant, engaging in this fight in your heart for pride and for, against pride and for humility? So you tell me. What's the enemy of flourishing? At least one is complacency. Doing nothing about the things that threaten my welfare, your welfare. So let me show you two proofs, I believe, that indicate you've taken up arms for the conflict. Here's one proof. You scrutinize how your pride affects Everything. You're really concerned for how your pride affects your thinking, your speaking, the way you react to to others, how you listen, how you engage in conflict, how you think about money, how you think about success, how you disagree with your spouse, your brothers and sisters, how you pursue intimacy with God. You you want to know how your pride affects those things because it does constantly. So if if you're engaging in this battle in your heart against pride and for humility, won't you be slower to be defensive, quicker to help the disadvantaged, to love the unlovely, to focus less on your needs and to resist self-promotion? Won't you be that way? Here's an example in my life from a very good friend I met when he was in the Darden School at UVA and had a, a very, very successful career with Bank of America rose right to the top and i was speaking to him recently and i forget how it came to pass in our discussion but he told me in his decision making as a very high up executive at bank of america he said i always wanted people critiquing my thinking i always wanted people critiquing my thinking how many of us live that way how many pastors say to their elders critique my thinking how many experts say to the people they work with, critique my thinking? How many husbands say to the wives, critique my thinking? Not least my behavior. Critique my thinking. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a safeguard against falsehood? He said, I always wanted people critiquing my thinking, and he grounded that in the book of Proverbs. And secondly, he said, I always make decisions with an abundance of people around me. In the abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. He always made decisions corporately, collegially. I said, there's a model that worked in business. It ought to typify the way we do leadership in the church. So, when you're confronted with what's wrong with other people, and again, you can't help but notice it. What question do you want to ask yourself? Pull out of your holster. As as you're tempted to judge, Jesus acknowledges how easy it is to judge people. What question do you want to pull out of your holster? Anybody remember from last week? Could that be me? So, for example, you're reading, you know, Paul lists. He lists the fruit of the Spirit. He lists things that are good. And then he makes lists of sins. At the end of Romans 1, here's a list of sins slanderers, haters of God, haughty, boastful, foolish, faithless, heartless. When you read that in your Bible, do you stop and go, whoa, could that be me? And what's the answer? Of course. If it isn't, it's the grace of God. I think back at certain things I did in my life, or I didn't do mostly what I didn't do, and I think the only reason I didn't mess up royally is God, was re, unbeknownst to me, was restraining my behavior. I just, oh my goodness. He was there before I knew he was there. So personally, I, I look at my heart, there are two sins I've never been tempted by. I've never been tempted by suicide or same-sex attraction, but I could be. I could be. Do you know that in your heart is the seed of every possible sin? It's in your heart. Every possible sin. Don't think you're, you're beyond it. Don't think you're above it. All it takes is enough sunshine, fertilizer, and you know, water for that seed to sprout. So you might say, oh, I haven't been tempted by that. But I could be. But for running to Jesus and to a spirit, oh, we have so much power. We have so much help in the spirit of Jesus to make more vivid to our imagination who God is and the loveliness of obeying God than succumbing to pride's insistence on self. Have you taken up arms with the conflict? Here's one other proof. You resist the notion that I'm fine the way I am. Now, you might not consciously tell yourself that, but you may have woken up that this, morning, this morning basically operating as if I'm fine the way I am. I'm fine the way I am. If, if, if you are on the humility trajectory, seeking to be on it, resisting pride, you'll want to experience the full glory of being human. You'll want to say, God, I want to be what you made me to be, not what I want to be. And so you'll desire a transformation in your soul. See, what do proud people say? You need to change. And that might be true. The humble don't deny that, but where's their focus? I need to change more than I know. I'm not as humble as I think. I'm more proud than I know, and I need to change more than I know. So the humble heart has a fear. Not the ones we, we well, it was a wonderful prayer. Yeah, we, we prayed it. It was an excellent prayer this morning about fears. But there's a healthy fear. And that is, I don't want self-deception to get the better of me. And where do I get that concept? Out of the book of Proverbs. So you need to memorize this one because it's so helpful. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There's a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it's the way of death. So there are decisions before you and, and we have the capacity as human beings to go, this makes perfectly good sense. This looks like the right thing to do. I could see, clearly see myself going in this direction. That there's a way that seems right to a man. And in the end, it's the way of death. So without wisdom from God, without revelation from God, without walking in the light of God's presence and word, I will bring hurt on myself choosing my own way. And that's why Proverbs says you've got to ask God to check your motives, Proverbs 16.3. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. We have this self-justifying propensity in our hearts. Every man's way is right in our own eyes. Don't you engage in a disagreement with somebody else thinking, I'm right, right, until proven wrong. And a lot of us don't want to be proven wrong. So we're always right. No, 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 no. Proverbs 30:12 There's a kind who's pure in his own eyes and is not washed from his filth. How can that be? This is perfect. This makes perfectly good sense. And I'm filthy. See, that's this I'm just fine the way I am. So you want to ask the, you want to ask the Lord could these verses describe me? If you believe this, here's one way you'll wake up and pray. You wake up and pray this. Lord, if left to myself, my pride, my selfishness, my demandingness, my pettiness will ruin my relationships. Do you I'll speak to those who are married? Do you know who is the greatest threat to the welfare of your marriage? You are. Who's the greatest threat to the welfare of your church? I am. If left unchecked, my pride, my foolishness, my, however you want to measure it, I'm a threat to the welfare of your church if, until, unless I run to Jesus. And there we find this Savior who welcomes the desperate, whose grace always flows downhill. It only goes to the needy. It only goes to the desperate. Grace doesn't go uphill to the, to the to the strong and the mighty. No, no. It goes to the heart that is so so needy. Would you pray that, Lord? I'm the greatest threat to my relationship with Janice. If left to myself, I will ruin it. And now, Jesus, you better show up and give the grace, create the humility, create the compassion, the patience, the love, the kindness. The sensitivity, you've got to create that, Lord, doesn't naturally reside in my heart. I said this last week, I'll say it again. Here's what's so ironic. The thing that most beautifies your heart, humility, you least desire. That thing that most soils your heart, pride, you least detect. This is why we need sermons on humility, I think, and we need the word of God, and we need the presence of Jesus and the love of Jesus. Fourth question, Jesus has brought you to class, What's the, what's the question on the board? Why do I notice the specks in other people's eyes but I don't notice my own logs? Fourth question, do I adorn a humble mindset? Why do I call humility a mindset? I'm thinking of Philippians 2, where Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition. Yep, that makes sense. But with humility of mind, count others more important than yourself. Humility of mind. Humility looks up at the value of others as more important than me. Look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. And then he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on with this hymn about the glory of Christ, humility and exaltation. Oh, You know the verses. But it's so clear for Paul there that humility is a mindset, a way of interpreting reality. And I'm going to review last week. There are two lenses that the humble heart uses to interpret everything, not least the faults of others. Do you remember those two lenses? On the one hand, mercy. On the other, grace. You don't want to make sense out of anything in your life. Do any decision making. Nothing. You want to view everything through the lens of, I've not... Gotten what I deserve from God. Mercy, oh my goodness. Jesus took the condemnation to my place. God is never giving me what I deserve. I'm not getting what I deserve. It should stun us. Grace, I have received far, 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 far more than I deserve. God has been so, so, so good to me. So seeing through those lenses, the humble heart is quick to credit God with everything good, quick to take blame for anything that isn't. You find a particular blessing bringing joy to the heart of God, bringing joy to others, and you resist self-exaltation. Maybe this will illustrate it for you, seeing with the eyes of well, not seeing with the eyes of humility. I had a skin cancer thing a number of years ago and had to drive from Lynchburg to Charlottesville to see the doctor for the final checkup. And I show up at, at the appointment, let's just call it 10 a.m., and I'm waiting. 10, 10, 10, 20, 10, 30. How am I feeling? Pretty impatient. Uh, we have a saying in my family, sherets don't wait. Well, I was waiting, and I'm a sheret. So, you know, I'm, I'm not happy and so, you know, the doctor's office, you got, na- you got children's highlights and National Geographic. So pick up National Geographic, open to the center page or whatever. And here's this full-page full picture of this war-torn area, this war-torn area in the world, just devastation and people, you know, tattered. And, and, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, Mike, why aren't you there? See, I was viewing my waiting for the doc with the lenses of pride. Which is deserving and demanding. I deserve better than this. I demand what I think makes me happy. That's pride. I was not viewing my situation through the lens of humility. Excuse me, through, uh, through mercy and grace. And the Lord needed to arrest my heart. Take off those pride glasses, buddy. I mean, it's just this little. I already knew my scar had healed, but uh, all right. Maybe, maybe that's helpful to you. It's interesting that one of the Hebrew words for humility was also used in that culture for a pipe or a conduit. And doesn't that imply you're just a vessel of God's grace? Just a vessel. Doesn't Paul say that in 2 Corinthians? We have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels, just just clay jars? Last question. Do you embrace, do you live by the replacement principle? Do you live by the replacement principle? What is that? In the Garden of Eden, a couple things were patently obvious to Adam and Eve. One is, we had nothing to do with everything we're enjoying right now. We didn't create the trees. We didn't create the fruit. We didn't create the ground. We didn't create paradise. Oh, it is beautiful. We had nothing to do with it and we didn't create ourselves. And everything we enjoy about this setting, we had nothing to do with. We're simply here enjoying it. And we've been given this marvelous stewardship by God to make something terribly significant with it. At least that much is imminently obvious to Adam and Eve. Inexplicably, they determined that they knew better than God how to find happiness in that setting. We can fashion life on our own terms, not God's. And so they usurped. They stole. As an act of cosmic treason, they exchanged God-centered life-givingness for man-centered death. Can you imagine the grief in the heart of God? They exchanged life-giving God-centeredness with death-producing self-centeredness. And so it's so ironic, beloved, that pride seeking to replace God inferior dependent limited man trying to overthrow superior sovereign unlimited god okay so what is sin sin is man putting himself in the place of god what is salvation god putting himself in the place of sinners See, your sin, my pride, has earned a just judgment. And Jesus Christ came to this earth to undo that. So on his cross, he offers a replacement to you. He says, let me take your place for the judgment, for the death. For the hell your sins deserve. Let me take your place, and you take my place as a righteous son accepted uh, uh, child of God. That's that's the exchange. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5:21: God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the gospel. It's the grace and mercy of God to not spare his son, but to give him up for us all. That in Jesus Christ, there would be a full payment for sin, a complete removal of all your sin, all your guilt, anything that pride has created. It is gone into the body of Jesus, nailed there permanently, and you are instantly, the moment you trust Jesus, you believe this promise, you look to Christ, you ask for faith, you, you trust him, you are instantly, you become a righteous son or daughter of God. And it can't be undone. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? So the humble relish in that grace and mercy constantly, and it never gets old. And it really does transform the way you view and, and uh, the way you interact with people particularly those with whom you have difficulty liking. So I put in your bulletin, this is Jesus' homework for you. This is your homework. Um, We're not going to go over this now because I've probably gone too long, but these are some little uh, ironic, pithy aphorisms, I guess would be the technical term, little sayings that seek to contrast the proud and the humble. So you want to get this out and have some quiet time with the Lord. And what question do you want to ask? Could that be me? Proud, that could be me, but for grace. And by grace, humble, that will be me as Jesus pursues me and works in me and transforms me into his beautiful image. Let me pray for you all. Thank you for your beloved Jesus. Thank you that you pursue us to make us like yourself. Thank you that at the heart of that transformation is wrestling with pride and seeking by the power of the Spirit to adorn the humble glory of Jesus. Bring that work to us day in and day out. Make us a body of people clothed in humility for Jesus' sake.